Hi, Nina Kumar. Oh, hi. <laughs> I just walked away from the phone for a sec. <laughs> well, happy almost new year. Happy almost end of 2020. We only have hours left. I know, and I'm glad that you and I are, are joining to, to bring in the new year together. Yeah, or to, to wave out 2020 together, too. Bye-bye, 2020. Oh, I'm so ready to let it go. <laughs> I really am. And and we had a tradition in our family where we'd talk about things we were proud of in the previous year and what we look forward to in the new year. And I don't even want to look back. I want to look forward. But yeah. as you said this morning when we were having a quick chat over coffee you said that this feels like we're still in a state of limbo, even though tonight will mark the beginning of 2021. It really does feel that way, right? Because we're caught between, you know, getting the vaccine, getting some of our healthcare providers vaccinated, and yet the hospitals on the West Coast are overflowing. Um, I totally feel for all those West coasters who are treating people or trying to treat people. And of course, everybody who's sick. So we're seeing like record numbers of people being hospitalized and dying again. And then at the same time, some hope on the horizon. Um, and what will life look like in 2021? Are we going to go back to seeing, you know, in, in December, 2021, 21, will I resume all the Christmas parties I used to go to or, yeah. Will it be like a little more like 2020 or um, will I be seeing my clients in person again or will we stay remote? We don't know. We can't yeah. predict. I, I think we have to go month to month. And when you hear that ICUs are filled to the brim, and that we are still in a state of crisis in most of our states in this country. You know that when the Pope in Italy decides to cancel New Year's Eve and the New Year's Eve Mass, that things aren't good. Um, he's He canceled services not just because of COVID, but because sciatica is flaring up. So who knows emotionally how the, the, the Pope, the leader of the Catholic religion is, is Wait, doing. Wait, that's what he said? Yeah. Sciatica? Yeah so funny and in in europe many of the bars and restaurants uh are closed at 7 p.m due to the curfew here in new york city our curfew is 10 p.m and people are going to dinner as early as 5 p.m in the city which is definitely not cool and chic in the eyes of a new yorker but it's necessary now yeah what do you think about curfews like how does that curb the spread I think, I think what it does is, as you know, people go out and they start to drink. And the more they drink, the less inhibited they are. And that's when mistakes happen and people do things that aren't necessarily safe. So I think abiding by a curfew, it makes sure people are off the streets at 10 p.m. They're not in bars getting drunk. They're, they're not doing, uh, the, the behaviors aren't as risky or hopefully not. But then the counter argument is, is that people are creating house parties right. and underground off the grid parties, which are uh, a COVID nightmare. Right. Just like small gather, you know, going into each other's apartments or whatever. Um, and also can't, I mean, human beings are very adaptive as we have seen with the pandemic. So 
even though things have really shifted um, in sort of how we relate and, you know, interact with the world, um, we have somewhat adapted by the end of 2020. And um, would not a partier adapt and start drinking earlier instead of later? Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe even drinking all day. Who knows? Right. That's what I mean. So tailgating in New York City. Can I tell can I tell you something really funny right now? Yeah. As we're recording this podcast, uh, Josh just came in here with these brand new what are they called, honey? Uh, pressure cuffs for your pressure cuffs for your calves. <laughs> for what? So he just likes the feeling of getting his calves massaged. So as I'm on this podcast with you, I'm I'm getting pressure cuffed by these cab stimulators so it's pretty this is my lockdown this is my lockdown gift to myself yeah I mean it sounds wonderful it's so nice I I really do miss the um the the massages in this pandemic I know you mean your (laughs) husband your husband's not giving you a daily massage you know actually my husband is very good at massage but it's not it's not really the same as you know going somewhere and lying down and just surrendering you know that's actually a really good point because I I, I, what's shocking me the most in this period of limbo where most of us you and I we're still abiding by all the protocols we're staying in our homes with our family we're not out partying we're not saying yes to invitations for house gatherings I still have many many friends during this time that have hopped on planes, whether it's commercial or private, and they've gone to St. Bart's or they've gone to Aspen or they're planning their New Year's in, in Miami with no fear of, of consequences or, or repercussions of the illness. And some of these people have had COVID, so they feel that they're immune to anything happening to them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, I don't really have the urgency to jump on a plane and go to Aspen. How do you feel about that? I mean, we could go next year. I've never been to Aspen, but I I can I can wait it out. Um, I, I think you would why love do you it. Think, why do you think <laughs> you're, because they're your friends, why do you, what do you think it is about them that they are feeling free? I think, I think they don't like to be told that they need to stay put. And they've had a ritual every year where they travel and they celebrate Christmas and the holidays in St. Bart's and they're still going to go and they're going to find a way to get there and all power to them that they can make that happen and manage to be safe. Uh, As a New Yorker, I feel a lot of um, allegiance to the city. I feel like I have to batten down with the people here and we have to support one another. My boyfriend owns a bunch of restaurants in New York City, and last night he did a soft opening at one of his restaurants called Lafayette. It's on uh, Lafayette Street in downtown New York, and he had these igloos built on the perimeter of his restaurant, and they have uh, the doors. What did they build them out of? It's plastic, but it really does look like a plastic igloo, Mm -hmm. and inside there's heaters, and there's a hatch on top, so fresh air can come in and out the doors open but you you go with your family or your safe people i want to go with you you can and the first uh dining time begins at nine so there's usually two or three seatings throughout the night but they give, yeah 
well, that you have to be out of there by 10. So let's say you start at five, you've got a five uh-huh. o'clock reservation. You have to uh-huh. be out of there by six, 15, 630. Uh-huh. They clean the whole thing. They have the special spray. And then the next round will come in at, I don't know, 645. However, it sets up, everyone's out of that restaurant before 10. Right. Okay. But it was really nice to be out because I think I've only gone to maybe, I don't know, four or five restaurants outside of New York since COVID happened. And uh, it's been a devastating time for all food and beverage hospitality groups in the city. Uh, Restaurants are closing every single day here. Yeah. Um, Restaurants, you know, other small businesses, but yeah, restaurants. And I think of just the theater community in the city has just been devastated in the same way as restaurants. So we're going into this new year with still so much uncertainty and still a lot of fear. I also think that the vaccine, though it does bring a lot of hope, there's still a lot of uncertainty there. Have you heard anything about, because uh, I know in, in New York City, we, our governor and our mayor are doing their best to distribute the drug as quickly as possible, the Pfizer drug, Moderna. How are things in New Jersey with that? And in terms of uh, approval, healthcare workers, what's happening? Well, now, I, I don't know if every, so the way New Jersey is, is they're distributing it by county. I don't know oh. if every, um, I mean, obviously not every state is the same, actually. Not obviously, because I thought every state was supposed to follow the mandate or the recommendations of the CDC, which, you know, I don't know it by heart, but it's like, you know, there's one, the first would be like first responders. Um, the second tier, I think, is like senior citizens. And yes. I don't know, you know, right. so nursing um, home residents. But uh, yeah. my, my, uh, my, my, I was talking to my parents last night and they told me that's not how every state is working. Some like Florida is starting with senior citizens, I think something like that or nursing homes. Um, anyway, long story short, I know, I know some doctors who have had the vaccine. Um, and that is certainly continuing. I don't think that they are like moving that fast. That's how it seems to me. They don't seem to be moving that fast. Because <laughs> from what I hear at the vaccine site for our county is empty, yet it's hard to get an appointment there. So I don't know what they, I mean, I'm sure there's some sort of administrative blockage, mm-hmm. but um, hopefully once they get in the flow. Well, you said infrastructure. I don't know how they've been able to create that or prioritize that in, in New York. They're trying to prioritize a little under 2 million vaccines for our healthcare workers, mm-hmm. nursing home residents, other first line workers, critical incident people. Uh, that sounds like a lot of vaccines, but it's going to happen. I mean, it should be happening now. We should be almost done with providing 1.8 or 1.7 healthcare workers with vaccines by now. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know if it's been done or I know it's been approved. Mm-hmm. But I would love for us to go into the new year feeling um, a little less anxious about the spread of this disease. Yeah, and so maybe it's mixed. And that's sort of what we were talking about before we started of, of being in limbo where, you know, there's some relief that help is on its way. It doesn't feel like it's a black hole. It's futile. And, but at the same time, 
what will life be like? When will it actually all be done? Um, I think for people who have had the disease, maybe some are reluctant to get the vaccine Mm -hmm. because, you know, your body has been so out of control and who knows, it's not like vaccines are without side effects because sometimes they do have, you know, so there's like all this uncertainty and, um, I mean, essentially life is uncertain at all times, but there's just times where you're smacked in the face with the uncertainty of it all. Yeah. I, I, I do want to get the vaccine eventually. Obviously I want our healthcare workers to be in line for the first ones and people that are most vulnerable. It's just how I feel. And I'm pretty good at taking care of myself and my family and following protocol. Right. But as you and I know, because we've been studying this whole long hauler crisis that's going on in our country or globally, we also see that some of the aftermath is getting scarier and scarier. Remember that article that you sent me and yeah, about psychotic symptoms? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. And they were, I, I wanted to research a little bit more, but, but as they described it in the New York Times, it was in the um, December 30th yeah. edition. It was about psychotic symptoms in worldwide being identified more and more uh, post-COVID. Um, and I said to you at the time, what it brought to mind was that doctor, I think her name was Lorne, Lorna Breen, mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. who worked in a New York City hospital and had COVID, returned to work, um, was sent home, and then committed suicide. And... Um, I remember at the time her family saying, oh, there's something, you know, like that the disease had really altered her mental state because she would never do this. And I spoke um, through my like clinical, um, you know, work to a couple doctors who had known her and worked with her and said there was no way that the Lorna they knew would have done that. And, you know, when you get information like that, you have to think, what was going on in her mind, you know, like, of course it could have been that depression had increased or anxiety had increased or just that she was in an altered mental state. Um, Sometimes, yeah, but sometimes it doesn't even, it doesn't present for weeks and weeks after the virus. Right. No, most, mostly. And in, in the New York times articles, all um, mild cases, it was no one who had been sick, you know, severely ill and in the hospital. It was a mild case of COVID followed by six weeks later feeling like, you know, you had to kill your kids or something. I think that was one of the examples, right? And that in that article, um, severe, severe um, psychosis. Some people who could identify it, so even in their psycho- psychotic state could identify it was altered. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people who sort of, really were swept in and feeling like that, you know, sort of like in a true psychosis where you, uh, you really believe what you're imagining. I don't know if it was on the morning show last Sunday. I was watching it with Josh. The experts said that the, all of these brain related effects were probably linked to, um, the patient's immune system response to the virus because everyone had yes. a different one, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And vascular problems, inflammation caused by the disease, and it's frightening. My brother texted me two days ago and said a husband and wife in Connecticut, the, the husband was a lawyer, 
he they both had had coronavirus. The husband came home from work, shot his wife, and shot himself. Oh my uh-huh. god! Yeah. So, but we still don't know what's really going on with the uh, the trajectory of this disease after you feel like it is uh, has left your body. I, I mean, yeah. And by by the way, can I just say I, I just was realizing when you were saying that another thing that's sort of really contributing to the uncertainty and the limbo right now is this new strain that yes. came out of, uh, I don't know, supposedly came out of England. And as soon as I heard it was in, in England, of course it's here. Like now it's big news the last two days that it's here, but of course, have we not learned anything yeah, know. You know, that if it's in England, it's worldwide. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty scary too, right? That if it's not that it's more deadly, but that you're, for whatever reason, I think something to do with those spike proteins, it's more, it, it can attach more easily. But all the more reason, and I, I don't even know how to, to rally the troops more on this, but we have to wear our masks. We have to stay in our homes as much as we can, just for now. Yes, we have a vaccine, and hopefully this vaccine is effective. But if you really want to protect yourself and your family, you have to stick to the protocols. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost over. Yeah. You know? We could get through this last it's, hump um, together. So how are we? So I feel like, okay, we have two two avenues mm-hmm. we could go in uh, here now is, you know, stick together till it's over. And how do we, how do we get through it till it's over? Um and I was saying something to you before we started talking about how like some days are sort of it just some days are minute by minute or, you know, hour by hour or half day by half day. Like you just figure out how to get through those smaller pieces. Um, but I think the other thing we wanted to talk about today, too, was being a caretaker, because that's something you're you're really familiar with and have been really, um, you know, doing a lot over the holiday season. Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's something that many families are dealing with now, whether they have someone at home that is recovering from COVID or someone that's home that's been dealing with a chronic illness for years. You're with the person a lot more than you were pre-pandemic, and how, mm-hmm. um, how are you impacted emotionally and psychologically when you are the caretaker? And if I could give any advice because I'm speaking just personally right now there are days when you know for a fact that you are so burnt out and you're emotionally spent you didn't get enough sleep the night before how do you make sure that you're not reactive how do you make sure that when your loved one your child your um maybe your mother or father living with you that when they're having a really tough day that you don't snap and so what I try to do is I use my words very differently. So if I'm exhausted and fatigued and um, feeling like I have nothing left to give, I say that. <laughs> or before, mm-hmm. I'd muscle through it and be superwoman, super mom. Don't worry, I got this. Yes, I'll go get you this. Yes, I'm going to CVS. Yes, I'll call your doctor. I say, I need a moment. No, I don't. I can't rub your legs right now. I need to just go be by myself for a bit. 
And by the way, sometimes it only takes me 15, 20 minutes to regroup and uh, regenerate and come back and I'm okay. But we forget as caretakers to do that for ourselves. What do you do for that 15 or 20 minutes? Like what, what do you find helpful? Um, whether it's just taking a shower, laying on the floor in my bedroom and breathing. Um, sometimes it's meditating. Sometimes um, my favorite thing to do is just take the dogs and walk outside for a half an hour and just look mm-hmm. at the horizon, get my mind off everything but the dogs, realize that there's hope because how do you realize there's hope alive it's brisk it's it's the holidays everything's going to be okay and you you just i mean self-care is the number one i think it's the number one most important thing you can do for yourself when you are caring for someone that is very ill and without by by the way that's self yeah self-talk Yeah. Things are going to get, you know, you're sort of, I think, I think some of the self-talk too can be like, we've done this before. It's been this bad before we've gotten through it. It's gotten a little bit better. Like, do you use that kind of thing? Because I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions. I'm not going to be able to find the cure today. But what I can do is make sure that I'm in a place where I'm strong and I still have a sense of my purpose. And then when I'm in the room with my daughter, who's been very sick the last couple months, I, I, come in, I come into that room when I'm with her from a place of strength and confidence. And it's not disingenuous. If it's, it's real because I'm talking from a place where I believe that she's going to be okay. She can always tell when I'm bullshitting her. Most chronically ill people know when the people around them are not being real with them. So that's, I can't emphasize mm-hmm. enough for all of us to take care of ourselves first, go into the situation, being honest and authentic and doing the best you can. And by the way, including that person, when you're a caretaker, unless your patient or loved one is close <clears throat> and in extreme pain and hooked up to morphine, that's a, that's a whole other story. And you still have to take care of yourself during those times. I'm talking about the chronically ill loved one, patient, friend that still can dialogue with you and they still have a part in their treatment plan. Talk to them, ask their advice, ask them what they think they should be saying to the doctor. Include them in the whole process. And by the way, it lightens your load as well if you feel you have a partner in this because they need a partner and you also need a partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, when, when when someone is very very sick in the hospital, they they often they need somebody to take over, you know, to 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 be their own advocate, you know, to be their advocate when they can't be. But um, in chronic illness, it's more so, uh, I guess, a series of partnerships. You and Katie, Katie and her whatever doctor, um, whatever you know, all her healthcare providers. Uh, you might want partnerships yes. with all of them to lighten the load because it's really heavy. It's very heavy. And maybe I still am, I have a lot of alacrity around compartmentalization, which a lot of us do. I'm sure you do too, Nina, because you're dealing uh-huh. with a lot of clients mm-hmm. on a daily basis. There's, because of social media and um, 
especially Instagram, there's so many forums out there for people that are dealing with chronic illness. There's this one group, they're called the Unchargeables. Yeah, they're awesome. And because if you think about it, we recharge all the time. You and I can go for a walk. We can get on a Peloton. We can uh, drink celery juice for five days and, and voila, we feel recharged. Chronically ill people don't have the luxury of feeling recharged. And this one quote, that I, that I saw, I just loved it. It said, I am not a bad, weak, lazy, or broken person. I am a person managing a very difficult and chronic illness. And the message is loud and clear. You can look at me and judge me, but you're not inside my body. And even as a caretaker, I can't fathom what it's like for my daughter on a daily basis. But what I can do is be there for her as much as I can, but at the same time, making sure I'm okay. How do you, I mean, how do you manage that? Because I think of all the parents who are so worried about their kids um, during the pandemic, like is, is a year of schooling loss you know, gonna, you know, change the course of their life? Or is the anxiety we all feel gonna change the course, you know, but just watching your child child's struggle or suffer in any way, even just the fear that they may have to struggle or suffer makes parents very anxious. Parents, you are so, you just, that that is exactly the, the, the global conversation right now. Parents are so anxious about how is this pandemic going to affect my child long-term? They don't have the same friends. They haven't been socializing. They seem depressed. They, 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 they're obsessed with technology. They're obsessed with video games. What is this going to do? And I find that this is an opportunity for parents to have hard, open, honest conversations with their children and lean into that vulnerability that we don't always have the time to do because you're working, your husband's working, you see your kids at dinner, maybe you see your kids at breakfast, but you see your children a lot more. So take that time to take a walk with them and tell them that truthfully, this is one of the most challenging years we've dealt with as a family, as a country, as a globe, and explore that together instead of, oh, I only want you playing video games for one hour. (laughs) That's concrete. But sit down and, and have a conversation. Why are we so afraid to do that with our kids? I do not know, but that is sort of the crux of child and family therapy, you know, which is sort of like facilitating those conversations. I want to ask you just to like yeah. circle back and then we can move forward a little bit with this idea of like, of, of, you know, kids in the pandemic, but how do you, you know, if we're so worried about how kids are going to, going to, um, you know, respond to all these difficult changes in their lives and how are they going to cope? Um, it's sort of illustrative of, of this idea of like, as parents, we just worry about our kids. Like that's a lifelong thing. So how do you, I mean, your child is so ill at times. How do you, how do you think you get past that frenetic, frantic worry? I don't know if I, I do get past it, but, um, I know that I've changed throughout the last eight years of watching Katie go through all of this. And what I do allow for now, which I didn't the first few years, is I cry in front of her. 
And the other day, she's mm-hmm. just so distraught and feeling so sick, having a cortisol surge and so much pain. And I just hugged her and I cried and we both cried and there were no words. So how do I get through it? I guess I have to allow for my vulnerability to get into the conversation more than it used to. Um, I stay as informed as possible. Sometimes Josh and Alex, her husband, they think I'm crazy, but I dive down that that research hole and I want to see what's going on in the world. And I contact doctors and research scientists, but that helps me. That is comforting when I see data or I see success with a new medication or I see success with a surgery. Uh, and, and, and this sounds really simplistic, but when you really love your children or your family member and you tell them that because you don't have the answers all the time, but you just say, I love you so much and I am going to be by your side and I'm going to hold you when you don't even want to be held and when you don't even want to be here anymore, but I'm here. And it does not make you um, an Olympic champion of motherhood or fatherhood. What it does is it just it reignites that whole feel, feeling of what motherhood's about, what fatherhood's about. And it's about love and protection. And you never outgrow that, Nina, right? We, you, you, it's always going to be a part of who we are. Yeah. Wanting it. Yeah. I think that's sometimes why when both parents die, it, you feel so, you know, you feel like an orphan, even if you're 50 years old, because the illusion that someone's going to love and, you know, protect you that a parent in the way yeah. a parent would is gone. Yeah. Even if you never got it. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you're saying the you you're sort of just mm-hmm. you're being with her. You know, that's how you deal. You you just be. You're sad when you're sad. You're um, you know, you have joyous times, I'm sure, when you when you can. You uh cry when you have to, you tell her you're hopeful when you feel that it's way the weir- that kind of thing. you have an amazing relationship with your children and I I love hearing how you and your daughter connect and you and Robbie connect and you're very good about putting your phone in another room and talking to your children and that still seems to be a big problem with American families the quality time you have with your children when that phone is in the other room is that that's what it's all about you have to listen intently be as present as you can. That is more of a demonstration of love than anything else because your your child is feeling re- really, really heard and they know that you're you're beholding them. And there's there's nothing more important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean sometimes I get home from work and I just hear like my arm <laughs> hurts, my blah 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 hurts, my you know and I'm like, okay, they just want me to listen to this, you know, like They've been waiting all day just to spout these few <laughs> sentences out about what ails them. So I just have, and so I just have to listen. But, you know, it, 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 you know, okay, so I was just listening to Adam Grant's uh, We Work podcast, one of his old ones before we got on the phone today. And it was one on loneliness. And he had a guest on who was saying it only takes 40 seconds to mm-hmm. basically connect and help with loneliness. So we think we're like, Oh my God, I have to call my, you know, mother and it's going to take four hours on the phone or whatever. And, and maybe it will. And maybe that's who your mother is, but your mother may feel 
brightened or your whatever relative might feel brightened, even just by a one minute conversation, you know, if, if you can connect, you know, it, not a, not a surfacey one, but something that like sort of where you feel seen or whatever. And, um, the example they were using in the podcast was this woman was about to do an interview for a radio station. She got there, she realized she didn't have a pen and the receptionist said, Oh, do you need a pen? Like recognized, could see that she was searching for something and handed it to her and she felt seen and she felt her cortisol (laughs) drop. Um, So it doesn't have to be, you know, that you have to sit down with your kids for an hour. Uh, This guy, Stanley Greenspan, who was, who's a, who was a great, I really love him as a developmental. I think he's a psychiatrist. Um, He, he had this, this concept of floor time which originally started with kids who had some form of autism, but uh, expanded out to any kid, any child in therapy, um, where you you spend 15 minutes playing on the floor with your child and and see themes or let them lead the play. Um, well, you let them lead the play. You watch what themes happen, and then you know you you sort of I guess report it back to a therapist, but. Um, I would give that assignment to parents and I would say it just takes 15 minutes of floor time. And there would be this shame that crept over their faces. Like, Oh my God, I don't even do that. Um, And I would say, I don't, I I wouldn't necessarily either. I would do it with all the kids I see in therapy, but when I got home, would I want to sit on the floor? I actually like playing, so I wouldn't even mind, but um, you know, there are times where I think I, it's not like I'm a perfect mom and I do all these things for my children necessarily on a daily basis, but that's all you need. I guess that's sort of my point. You don't need to spend a whole day doing these things or even necessarily hours, but it can be moments Mm. or minutes to connect and not feel so they don't, that the person think about how encouraging those few minutes are the 10 minutes, the 15 minutes, because for that day, mom has come into your bedroom, gotten on the floor with you, talked to you, and your child feels heard and held. And by the way, we if your mm-hmm. teenager had a terrible day at school, sometimes you just have to sit and listen to it because we we can't fix everything. I mean, is that our job to, to right. fix everything? No, but it is our job to listen and be present for our children. Yeah. Well, I was telling you that um, what what has been one of my, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you and I both suffered many losses mm-hmm. over the year. And maybe we should do our next episode about that. Because, I mean, there are, lar- there are losses large and small. Like, I, I lost, yes. lost our office that we yes. had shared for many years. Um, and you know, our friends, our friendships Mm -hmm. might have shifted a bit, even, even with each other, you know, like I would say we probably got close. (laughs) We were close before, but, um, we're still close, but you know, maybe your friendships with other people you're not as close with or, or you figure things out about those people who are still going to Aspen and such that Mm. make you feel a little bit different. Um, but one of the things I was sharing with you was that, uh, you know, my kids are teens, so they're a little bit harder to engage. And even though I love my teens, um, it is a shift and somewhat of a loss for me than when they were yeah. smaller. 
Um, wait, so let me, because I feel, I want to read this quote too, because I feel like it's in line Please. with what we were talking about. And it's, it's something I've been thinking about. Okay. Um, it's, it's by Anna Freud uh, and from her book, Adolescence. And it says, well, an adolescent remains inconsistent and unpredictable in her behavior. She may suffer, but she does not seem to me to be in need of treatment. I think she should be given time and scope to work out her own solution. Rather, it may be her parents who need help and guidance so as to be able to bear with her. There are a few situations in life which are more difficult to cope with than an adolescent son or daughter during the attempt to liberate themselves. Can you send me that? I love that. Such a good quote. So listen, you know, it's this idea for me, this was soothing because it's this idea, of course, it's painful for me. Um, and I have to bear witness. But when I think about Katie, too, it's like, um, there, there's sort of that, you know, in caretaking, there's sort of that dance with that, too. It's like, it's very painful to cope with her uh, watching her suffer. Um, and you need your own help and guidance and caretaking for yeah, that, and you too. can't diminish when someone's going through something that is life altering, like a chronic illness, don't diminish how they're feeling in that moment. Because when they say to you, I don't want to be here anymore. I used to say things like, Katie, how could you say that? Of course, you have so much to live for. Now I let her have that moment when she says, I'm done. It's been eight years. I'm getting worse. I'm declining. I say, you're right. It, this has been the worst year so far. And I, I can't imagine how you've made it this far. And I acknowledge all the feelings that she has. And in private, I acknowledge my feelings too, of feeling, you know, impotent, not able to help her get to the finish line in the right way. Right. So it's the same, it's the same, you know, it's different circumstances, but the same feeling. It's like she is attempting to liberate herself yes. from the confines of her body, you know, how even if even if that is just sort of fantasizing about death and um you're feeling you know the pain and helplessness and fear and you know whatever around that and um i'm not it's not comparable i mean it is comparable i mean listen there's no there's no like hierarchy of suffering right so it's like i suffer too and maybe that's not a bad thing but maybe that connects us in that we're suffering for different reasons, but we're both suffering. And mine is, is, is obviously much less in burden, but just this idea of, you know, my children attempting to liberate themselves from. I from know. Me. And it just sounds so painful and awful, but in a way, Maya and Robbie and the other teens out there, my niece, my nephew, their nephews, they're, they're going through their own sense of limbo and, how do they get to the other side with letting go of your hand? And it's frightening, right? It's frightening because they know that it'll infinitely increase their lives having this liberation, but we have to let them come back to the other side if they need to hold our hand again. Or if they say, I'm not ready, I, can you go across this bridge with me? I can't make it by myself. We do that for them. But then there's going to be that day that no one else is around and we have to give them the courage and the confidence to get across that bridge. The confidence, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 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 definitely yeah. you're in limbo, right? You're 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 like, a, I, I'm sort of like at their behest, 
like you want to come and talk to me and tell me everything that's on your mind great I'm here and now if you want to shut me out for the next three hours okay bye and I I sort of have to just let go and be okay with it because I know it's developmentally appropriate and good um I just wanted to add that that Anne um Anne Frank um in her the diary of Anne Frank she you know was obviously she was uh I was want to say isolated, but she was she was isolated in this house with her parents and a couple other families and or one other family. But anyway, her diary really takes her through adolescence. So even during this time of the Nazis, when she was stuck inside the house for however many years, you see her like rejecting her mother and having a crush on someone else and, you know, like longing for friends her age, all the things that an, any adolescent would go through so it it it's so natural yeah and has to happen um but it's still really hard. and they don't think that you could ever and, relate um, in a million years to their internal world because how could a mom understand how could your my parents understand this and the thing is we've gone through it but it doesn't matter because they don't feel that we there is relatable to us anymore I mean, it's developmentally appropriate, and I feel like we veered away from from, uh, from COVID <laughs> and are doing a therapy session for me, but which is fine. But um, but which is fine. But um, wait, what was I gonna say about wait, how, what did you just say before that? You said Anne Frank and her relationship changed with her mother, and she had a crush. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just that as they move into adolescence, their yeah. family is supposed to be their friends. You know that is normal. But as a parent, you just have to let mm-hmm. them go. And that's your job. And that is hard to do. But like, I think I'm trying to approach it in a sort of a matter of fact way. And I think you do similarly with Katie, which is it's so hard, but it's her soul and her life, uh, you know, living through this horrible chronic illness and on some level. At some point, you just have to sort of emos- let go emotionally, right? Just sort of. Because, because if you don't, then you, you, you run the risk of, of burning out yourself. Um, and it's not real. It's like, it, it, you're, as you are saying before, it's not your struggle. You can't mm-hmm. imagine how it would feel to be in there. You have a different struggle. Yeah, I do. And, and I think going into the new year, what we want to do for each other, Nina, is give all of ourselves a little bit of an extra break around feeling uncertain and anxious. And yes, we still don't have the answers and we don't know what February and March are going to look like, but just be present for each other. Can you imagine if everyone said, yeah, let's get down on the floor for 15 minutes or, you know, let's mm-hmm. go take a walk together. Totally. It, 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 it's a game changer for people. It really is. It only takes 40 seconds to make a connection and make someone feel less lonely. So whether it's like, you know, somebody you know who's out there struggling or a friend or a relative or whatever, it doesn't have to be a day long process. You just sort of make a quick connection. This year I wrote cards to every, every woman that I love and felt like helped me through this year. And each one took me maybe like five minutes, um, but it made oh, me feel it was super a beautiful connected. Card. I loved it. 
this is great. So, this has been amazing. Um, I, you know, one thing I tell Katie all the time, like Katie, just stay honest, stay strong and make everyone around you wonder how the heck you're still smiling and pushing forward. And I guess that's our message today. We're all dealing with a lot, but you can dig a little bit deeper, take care of yourselves, be present for those you love. Yeah, and care, caretakers, yeah. take care of yourselves too. There's no guilt, no shame. It's, it's necessary and sometimes you have to figure that out on your own, you know, travel down the path of getting burnout and then pulling back. Um, but if you can listen to a master caretaker, take Jackie's advice. Happy New Year, everybody. Yourself.